So good morning. That's a way to get our morning started. Welcome to Awaken Church. And if you don't know me, my name's Frank, and uh, I'm excited to be able to share with you all today. Uh, and we're in the middle of, and in particular, I'm excited about sharing in this series that we're in the middle of. It's a series that we've entitled Questions Kids Ask, and then dot, 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 that our parents are afraid to answer. And the series came out of some fun things that happened this past summer, and I was excited to dive in, excited to get an opportunity to teach, and then Andrew, like, cut me in line and took the first two. I've been uh, itching for the opportunity to get up here. And so over the course of the past two weeks, if you haven't been able to be a part of the time, Andrew is taught on, is the Bible really true? And then what do I do when I am afraid? And before we dive into what I want to share with you all today, I, uh, I want you to understand something about this series. This series was never designed to simply be about answering questions that kids ask. It's about answering questions that all of us ask. Because let's face it, we all question God, and we all question the way that God works. And that's not blasphemy, that's just, that's just reality. We all ask questions. The difference is, kids typically ask their questions out of curiosity. And adults typically ask because of doubt. Kids trust easily. They're more upfront, and their questions about God don't tend to be as, um, as loaded. It's okay to ask questions about God, because asking questions is associated with learning. They aren't jumping ahead. They're not considering the implications of your answer. They're simply curious. They ask questions because they want to discover. But adults aren't necessarily the same. We're a bit more jaded. We can tend to be a bit more skeptical. We don't typically ask innocent questions. We ask loaded questions. And what I mean by loaded questions is that we're asking questions where we're kind of anticipating the answer, anticipating some type of follow-up, and thinking through the implications of those answers. And so our questions, when we ask them, don't tend to be driven from pure curiosity. There's always a little bit of something else that we load in there as well. The questions are asked in order to take us somewhere, which makes questions adults ask complicated. And so as adults, many of us have lost uh, the ability, right, to simply ask a question out of pure curiosity with an earnest desire to learn. And that's what this series was about. That's why we launched this series, was kind of just to bring us back to that place that says, let's just come before God with an earnest heart, a pure heart, curiosity, and wanting to discover more about him. So that's what is at the heart of this series. Now, you can't have a series that's entitled Questions Kids Ask without letting grown-ups ask questions, too. So this is an Awakened Q&A series. And if you're newer to our church and don't know what an Awakened Q&A series is, what that means is if during the teaching, if there's anything that's shared or said that kind of provokes a question, provokes a thought or comment, feel free to text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. It'll be on every slide. And after texting that in, uh, after the teaching time, I'll spend about five minutes or so, and we'll just tackle whatever questions we're able to get to during that time. So that's awakenqna at gmail.com. Now, before we actually dive in, I want to share a couple of things, because the, the end of the year is fast approaching, and I want to make sure that we're all on 
the same page. So this is Sunday. Next Sunday, on Sunday the 23rd, we are inviting our kids to join us in the service. So that will be a lot of fun. A couple of months ago, my daughter and I, we interviewed a number of the different kids back there in Awakened Kids and asked them questions that they wanted to ask God. And so next week, we're going to put them up here. We're going to show you, and we're going to run through those questions. And it should be a really fun and engaging time. We'll do a little creative stuff. It'll be a really neat service, and I'm expecting that not only, hopefully, the children won't be too bored, but that for us as grown-ups, we're going to get some cool stuff out of it, too. And if you happen to be a parent, that's good for you because you're going to be in a no-lose situation because if the kids learn something, they're going to love church, and on the drive home, you're going to have some amazing things to talk about, and your kids are going to think you're brilliant and because you're so engaging, and that'll be a win. And if your kids don't learn anything, or if the pastor, whoever that, that's me, if the pastor answers a question in a stupid way, then you can go back and say, yeah, you know what, here's what Pastor Frank said, but I think this is a better way to tackle that. And they will look at you and think that you're brilliant and that you are a rock star, win-win scenario. So as parents, you can't lose. So that's next Sunday. Next Monday, which is after next Sunday, is going to be Christmas Eve. We will be having this cool underground Christmas Eve service from 5.30 to 6.30. It's really, really cool. And not only is it going to be a fantastic time, but it's being put together without any of the pastors really knowing anything or being super involved. So in other words, it's going to be awesome, off the chain, and not stuffy at all. So that's next Monday. And then the Sunday after, so two Sundays from now, we will not have a service because a number of us will be at Faith Walkers and the rest of you we want to release you to spend some great time with your family and enjoy your Sabbath. So that's going to be the next few weeks, which brings us to this week for part three of what questions kids ask. And what we're doing today is, is we're going to do something a little bit different. We are, uh, we're going meta, meta. We're going to break the fourth wall. If you're a Matrix fan, we're going to be taking the red pill, right? This morning, instead of focusing on a question that one of our kids asked, we're going to break the box and ask instead, what is the real question behind questions kids ask? What is the real question behind the questions kids ask? So most of you know that I graduated with a degree in counseling, and what you might not know is if you're in the field, you get your master's degree in counseling, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to go out and practice as a counselor on your own. In the state of Florida, at least, if you graduate with a degree in counseling, you still have to come under the supervision of a supervisor for a minimum of two years and a certain number of clinical hours before you're allowed to test for your license, so that you can practice on your own. Well, my supervisor for the first two plus years was a, uh, an experienced older marriage and family counselor. His name was Dr. Larry Wagner. And about two to three times a month, we would sit down, we meet together, we discuss cases, and I would tell him how I was doing in sessions. I'd tell him how I don't know anything, and I feel like I'm doing my clients a disservice. And I just talked to him, and he would walk me through different ways to maybe see, to understand, and to handle those various sessions. And one of the things I remember him often asking me is, what were they really saying when they asked you that question, Frank? What was the real question? And when he first did it, it really irritated me because I'm like, what are you talking about? What's the real question? The real question is the question they asked. And then he pulls this Jedi, you know, like, was it really? Think about it. And so I'd be like, all right, you know, and so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to be your supervisor. And I'm going to Jedi mind trick you into thinking about 
the real question. So here's how we'll start. We're going to start with looking at some of the really common questions kids tend to ask about God. And some of their common questions, I mean, they've got a lot of them, but if you pull some of the common ones, they're going to ask, who made God? Where does God live? Why does God let people die? Does God speak to us? Why did God make us? Why did God create the devil? Does God have a family? And why does God let bad things happen? Now, obviously, this is a curated list of common questions that kids ask about God. But I want you to notice something with these questions. Their questions aren't all that unique, right? They're questions that adults might ask as well. But for kids, when they ask these questions, when they're asking questions like these, they aren't simply asking for the purpose of getting the right answer, which we all know because sometimes our kids, if they ask us these questions, it's like in the middle of our answer, they could be like, oh, look, reindeer, I'm going to go play. You know, they, they're not asking, but oftentimes the real question they're asking or the question behind the question is really, what is God like? That's what they're really wanting to know. What is God like? That's what they're really curious about. Now, adults are different. And here's some of the common questions adults ask about God. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? How can I trust the Bible with contradictions? Why is Jesus the only way to God? Uh, what about those who never hear about Jesus? How do you know God is real? How can a loving God send people to hell? Why did God create me? Why is homosexuality a sin? And again, this is an obviously another curated list, but it gives a good sampling of questions adults ask, which most of us, if we're out on the college campus or talking to different people about the questions they have about God, this is what we're going to hear pretty commonly. And again, what I want you to see is they're not questions that are all that different from what kids might ask, but the real question is different. The question behind the questions, when adults are asking these questions, they're not asking to necessarily discover what God is like, but the real question is typically, is God really good? You know, I love that our God is not a God who's afraid of questions. If you read the scriptures, there's approximately 3,300 questions that are asked in the Bible. And that's a bit hazy because, you know, there's no punctuation in Hebrew or Koine Greek. So it's not like you can go and count all the question marks. But that's the problem. You can tell by context, with context clues, what are questions or what are not. So in the Bible, there's about 3,300 questions asked. And almost all of them are reveal something about what God is really like. And if you read carefully, there's also going to be a number of questions that ask, is God really good? Now, don't put up the next slide yet. But I want to ask you, so, uh, so a number of the questions not only reveal who God is and what God's like, but also answer the deeper question that adults ask, is God really good? Including the first question that's asked in the scriptures. Now, out of curiosity, how many of you guys know what the first question in the scripture might be? You guys have a guess? Oh, guys, come on. What is it? Brilliant. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Isn't that interesting? 
The first question recorded in the Bible was asked by the devil, which is interesting, questioning God's word and questioning God's goodness. And Adam and Eve's response to that question and subsequent taking of the fruit leads to the fall and leads to what else? It leads to the loss of innocence. I just thought that was really intriguing, things that make you go, hmm, right? Coming back to the main point, both kids and adults tend to ask similar questions. But what drives the motivations behind asking those questions can often tend to be quite different. Kids tend to ask questions out of curiosity in order to find out what God is like. Adults tend to ask loaded questions that often put God's goodness, put God's character into question. And that being said, it's probably always been this way. It was that way in the garden, and it was that way in the days of Jesus as well. So I want to take a moment and uh, share with you a story it's, uh, I shared with you earlier that there are over 3,300 questions asked in the scripture. I bet you didn't know that Jesus was responsible for asking a bit over 300 of them. By one count, is the, uh, Jesus asks himself 307 questions in the New Testament. And so we're going to go through, and again, I share that because questions and his response to questions asked of him form so much of the foundation of his ministry. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to turn to John chapter 9. So we're going to read a story that I hope you guys will find as fascinating as I do. It's a story in the Gospels about a question asked to Jesus by the disciples. And if you don't have your Bibles, I put the verses up here. But you should have your, you know, to look up. All right, John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to, as we're going through this question, to think about not only how these, what these questions mean, but even how Jesus takes the approach of not only responding to the question, but the question behind the question. John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? So here's Jesus walking along, strolling down a path, and all of a sudden he sees this blind man. And that's what triggers this entire thing. Jesus sees someone in need. And the question his disciples ask when they see the same man that Jesus sees is really interesting. Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? That's a really interesting question. And here's why. I want you to imagine you're on this path walking along with Jesus. I want you to do more than that. I don't want you to just put yourself in the place of one of the disciples. I want you to imagine that it happened yesterday. Not 2,000 plus years ago. That it happened yesterday. You're walking along the street with Jesus, and you see a man who has been born blind. Most of us, we might ask the first question, right? I wonder why this man was born blind. But none of us would ask the second, right? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And why? Because that's rude, right? Because we know better. Because we know that a man born blind didn't do anything to cause his own blindness, and most likely his parents didn't have anything to do with it either. Now, this is really important, so follow me here. None of us 
would have blamed a man born blind for being blind. And most of us wouldn't blame his parents either. But we might blame God. And the disciples did the opposite. None of them blamed God for this man's condition. Instead, they were trying to figure out if it was the man who had done something wrong or if it's his parents. We'll circle back around to that idea. But the question again, why was this man born blind? And I want you to see that the question behind the question, the real question that was being asked is, whose fault is it when things go wrong? Whose fault is it when things go wrong? That's the question the disciples were really wanting answered. And that's oftentimes the question we have as well. The disciples blame sin. We tend to blame God, especially when we're suffering through something or we see someone suffering through something that they had no control over. And that is what makes Jesus' response so interesting. Verse 3. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus goes meta, right? So not only does Jesus answer the disciples' initial question, but he addresses the question behind the question as well. So let me show you how he does that. First, he answers their question. The reason why this man was born blind was not because of his sin and not because of the sin of his family. In fact, living in a sinful world means that we will all experience suffering in some way, shape, or form. But that does not mean that all suffering is a direct result of someone's sin. Second, regarding your real question. The question of whose fault is it when things go wrong? Here's what I want to tell you about that. It's the wrong question to ask. Too many times when people are going through difficult things, when people are experiencing pain or tragedy, what they're looking for is someone or something to blame. And what Jesus says is that's a useless, fruitless endeavor. It's not the right question. Instead of looking for the cause, I want you to look for the purpose instead. In other words, who is to blame for this man being blind is not the real issue. The purpose for this man being born blind is so that the power of God can be seen in him. That is the purpose for this man being born blind. Now, I'm going to say, before you jump ahead, because you're adults and you're thinking implications and all that stuff, stop. Hit the pause button, because what that means, what that, what that means is, is not what I think you think it means. Did I say that right? I said that right. Jesus is not saying with this declaration, right, the, the declaration of this happens so the power of God can be seen here. What Jesus is not saying is that, well, one day up in heaven, God decided to have this man intentionally be born blind so that one day when Jesus was walking along the road, he would happen to see him and heal him and have everyone cheer and say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, right? That is not what Jesus is saying. And if that was God's intention, it did not work because nobody cheers. 
In fact, if you read the story, what happens as a result of this healing is that Jesus gets into more trouble with the religious authorities, and so does the blind man. The blind man not only gets accused by the religious leaders and by the crowd as having faked his blindness his entire life to gain sympathy, but then he's thrown out of the synagogue and thrown out of, of the community. And effectively, what the people were saying to him is, not only are you a faker, and you faked your blindness your whole life, which explains why you can see now, but you're not allowed to worship with us anymore. You're not allowed to be a part of our community anymore. Isn't that crazy? That one of the end results, the result of this man being healed, was that he was even more of an outcast than he was while he was blind. So if God's intention was, okay, I'm going to make this man from the womb be born blind so that he would grow up and someday, and he would suffer, he'd experience poverty his parents would kick him out of the home also jesus could someday walk by heal him and everybody go yay you're really jesus then it's and this whole thing is an epic fail because none of that happens that is not what jesus was saying when he said what happened to this man is so that the power of god might be demonstrated in him instead this is what jesus is saying and this is what he meant right when he said, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. What Jesus is saying is that with God, suffering accomplishes a purpose. Look, everyone suffers. There is no exception to that rule, right? Part of living in a sinful and broken world means that at some point in our lives, everyone suffers. Without God, your suffering means nothing and accomplishes nothing. It has no purpose except to cause you pain. But with God, what he says is that your suffering is designed to be transformative. In other words, your suffering releases the power of God in you. And here's what that means. Sometimes what that means is like in the case of this blind man, the power of God being demonstrated in you results in you being healed from whatever it was that caused you pain and suffering. Causes you to be redeemed, healed, restored, unbroken, however you want to describe it. But sometimes, like in the case of Paul, when he had the thorn in his flesh, and he prayed, he begged God three times for God to take it from him, and God did not. Sometimes the power of God demonstrated in you results in you not being healed so that God's power may be perfected in weakness. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not about the blind man. It's about all of us. There's a lesson for all of us, right, that whether you're healed or not healed, whether you're restored or not restored, the pain and suffering we endure is because we live in a broken world, and it only has meaning, it only has purpose, it only has power through God. Otherwise, it means nothing. I wish I had some time to unpack this more, but, uh, but this morning's teaching is not about suffering and pain. It's about questions. More specifically, this morning's teaching is about questions behind the questions we ask, right? What is God like versus is God really good? So in a couple moments, I'm going to be wrapping up. If you have any additional questions, go ahead or thoughts or comments you want to make, just text them now to awakenqna at gmail.com, and I'll get to them in just a little bit. But before we get there, 
I want to make sure that we're all clear and confident that we have an answer to the real question of, is God really good? And the answer to this real question of, is God really good, is yes, 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 he is. Always and in every way imaginable, God is good. But it will require faith. It will require an unshakable hope. It will necessitate a moment-by-moment steadfast love for Jesus. It will require faith, hope, and love to have the enduring belief that he is always good all the time. And the reason why faith, hope, and love will be necessary to cling to that truth is because the world and the enemy, our enemy, attacks, tears at it, will violently assault us in order to rip that truth from our minds and from our hearts because the world knows and the enemy knows that when Christians begin to question, when people begin to question the goodness of God, what happens is our hearts grow colder, we become more cynical, and we start finding reasons to take care of ourselves because we don't trust God to take care of us. And that's why that belief is constantly going to be under This is where too many Christians are today. They've surrendered that steadfast belief, and as a result, they're living these paralyzed, fear-filled lives, and that's not where I want you to be, saints. So I want to close with one final passage of Scripture. It's a passage that's a lifeline, I hope, that will help you cling to the goodness of God. And it's a passage found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. This is what it says. Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands upon their heads and blessed them. You want to know how to cling to the goodness of God? You come at him, you come to him with the innocence of a child. You set aside your loaded questions and your questions. You stop thinking about all the implications of every possible answer God could give you. And you come to God with curiosity, hope, and wide-eyed expectation. You spend time with him. You sit at his lap. And you allow God to bless you. Amen?